Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Yahweh's Covenant People. It is Saturday, January 15th, 2011. Eli will be back here next week, and, and we will resume with our, pro, our series on the Revelation. I have um, a couple of things to say before, before I begin. On Thursday on, on my Christagenia Euro Fellowship Program, I presented a paper I wrote and put on the front page of Christagenia, the last word on the first Adam. And, and I'm, I'm catching a lot of flack on this because, because I've upset some people because I've upset their beliefs that they've had an identity for um, many years now. And, and I think that's just tough. And, and that might sound arrogant and the title of my paper might sound pretentious, and I understand that. Believe me, I do. But, you know, I'm a little sick of people in Christian identity who feel that they have to defend themselves to the Jews, defend themselves to the universalists, defend themselves to the beasts. The hell with all those people. We don't have to defend ourselves to anybody. And, and if we want to build the kingdom of God, well, the Bible is the book of the kingdom of God, and the Adamic man was created in the Bible, and that's the end of the story, and I will debate anybody on that issue. There's a lot of people that think that they, have, they know what Genesis says, and they haven't even read the damn thing. They've heard something from Compare or Swift or, or Rand or, or, or some universalist or some, something or other, and, and they think they know what it says, and they don't. This is a difficult issue. But it's an issue that we must stand fast on. We have to build a firm foundation. If you don't have your faith founded on a solid foundation, then when the flood comes, your house is going to be washed away. That's just the way it is. So Monday on my open forum program, I'm going to present my paper again. I'm going to present my reasons for pushing this issue at this time and for being such a hard ass about it. And so uncompromising. I could be challenged. But whoever wants to challenge me better come with scripture in their hand, not with emotional arguments, not with the sophistry of men, but scripture. And I'll present this, work, this paper again this Monday on the Christogonia Open Forum, and I'll present an expanded version of it, and I'll present my reasons for pushing it. I'll present the implications if, if we stay in our error. The six-day and eight-day creation theory is dead. The idea that Adamites were created before Adam is dead. There's only one Adamic race. It's the only race created by Yahweh in the Bible. It's the only race of man. It is the kingdom of God, and it is the future. When we understand that, we'll be on the track to building that kingdom. We don't have to defend ourselves or our beliefs to anybody. We don't have to compromise our doctrine because we feel pressured to make room for anybody. That's what the Catholics do. And that's enough of that. Okay, tonight I'm going to present um, Errors Inspired by Who? Part 3. The first two parts of the series of essays exhibited many plain errors in the translation of the King James version of the Bible. 
which clearly contradict the often heard claims that the famous authorized version, as it is so called, is indeed the inspired word of God in English. Unless one wants to purport that the God of the Bible is the author of error, then the King James Version cannot be deemed infallible. It has even been demonstrated by the very words of the Westminster Confession, which was formulated in the year 1643, that those very men who first elected the King James Version as their official version of the Bible fully understood and professed that the original languages must be appealed to whenever there is a question of doctrine. A sufficient number of these questions have already been raised here. From the King James translations of the letters of Paul and certain statements in the writings of John and in the other epistles. While it has been demonstrated that there are many plain errors in translation in the King James Version, if there is only one error, if it can be proven that there's one error in the King James Version, King James Version of our Bible, then can we imagine the book to be infallible as so many, even in Christian Israel identity, claim it to be? Of course we cannot, and we must examine the scripture from sources as original as possible and determine what it says from those original languages, and that is our Christian duty. Here we shall present many more passages in the writings of Luke, where the renderings of the King James Version must be confronted because the translators have watered down the clear racial message of the scriptures, and therefore the word of the fulfillment of the covenants of God, which were made only with the children of Israel. That is the gospel. Once certain passages in Luke, both in his gospel and in the Acts, are properly translated, the everlasting and harmonious message of those covenants and the promises to Abraham and his posterity is perfectly consistent throughout the Bible. With the current King James Version, the words of Scripture conflict in so many places and even require a specially trained so-called priest to decipher them for the people. Whereas the original word has no such requirement. It will hopefully become evident here that these priests have indeed attempted to ruin the word of God and to pollute his covenants. Before we begin examining some of the mistranslation in the writings of Luke, which include both his gospel and the Acts, let us have some preliminary information. It was accepted by the early Christian writers, and it is evident from the fact that Luke was a longtime companion of Paul's, that wherever, the, wherever Paul had mentioned the gospel in his epistles, he was referring to that version which consisted of the accounts collected and recorded by Luke. It is also apparent that of all the Gospels, Luke's certainly pays the most attention to historic details 
and the historical setting of the events in comparison to what is going on in the wider Roman world. Luke pays a great amount of attention to the covenant relationship between the lost Israelites and Yahweh their God. This is very likely because of the role he had with Paul in searching out those long-lost Israelites. This is why, I believe, he felt it so important to record the words of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. Words which actually set the tone for an understanding of Luke's entire body of writing. And here we shall repeat them from my translation. Luke 1, 67-80. Then Zechariah, his father, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophecy, saying, Blessed is Yahweh, the God of Israel, that he has visited and brought about redemption for his people and has raised a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. Just as he spoke through the mouths of his holy prophets from of old, preservation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us. To bring about mercy with our fathers and to call into remembrance his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham, which is given to us. Remember, this is Luke, and he is a Greek who is writing this. Being delivered fearlessly from the hands of our enemies to serve him in piety and in righteousness before him for all of our days. And now you, child, shall be called a prophet of the highest, for you shall go on before the face of Yahweh to prepare his path for which to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the dismissal of their errors through the affectionate mercies of our God, by whom dawn visits us from the heights, to shine upon those sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child grew and was strengthened in spirit and was in the wilderness until the day of his manifestation to Israel. There is no universalism in Luke. That's all about Israel. Luke is connecting the gospel and the promises of Christ right to, directly to, the promises to Abraham and to the children of Israel made by the prophets thousands of hundreds, centuries, many centuries before. We should stress the fact that Luke must have known that the coming of Christ was certainly a fulfillment of the promises of Yahweh to natural genetic Israel, and that those promises as found in the law and the prophets were made only to the children of Israel and were exclusive of all others. This is evident through Luke's writings. However, the distinction is blurred by bad translations and misused words, such as Gentile. Here we shall proceed to expose this more fully. I'd like to read Luke 25, I'm sorry, Luke 2, verses 25 through 32. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, expecting the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it was forewarned to him by the Holy Spirit not to see death before he should see the anointed prince. And he came in the spirit into the temple, 
And in their being introduced to the parents of the child, Yahshua, upon their doing that which is according to the custom of the law concerning him, then he took him into his arms and praised Yahweh and said, Now release your servant, Master, in peace according to your word. Because mine eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in front of all the people, a light for the revelation of the nations and honor of your people Israel. Here's the first serious King James mistranslation in the Gospel of Luke. Let me repeat that. Simeon is saying that this child, Yahshua, is a light for the revelation of the nations in honor of your people Israel. The phrase, phos ike, phos ice, apocalypsin est known. Here is a light for the revelation of the nations. It may have been rendered a light for, a light for the revelation to the nations. The word apocalypsis is a noun. Apocalypsis means an uncovering or a revelation, according to Liddell and Scott. It is the same word which supplies the alternate name for the book of Revelation in our Bible, which is also called the Apocalypse, which is an English transliteration of this word, Apocalypsis. The King James Version rendering of this phrase is a light to lighten the Gentiles. That translation uses the noun, apocalypsis, as a verb, which is both impossible in the rational mind, and it's inexcusable. Furthermore, the King James Version rendering would require that the noun for nations be, in the accusative case, to be a direct object of that verb, a non-existent verb, because it's a noun which is not, which it is not. It's in a genitive case. Paul defines the faith which Abraham had as being the belief that his offspring would become many nations. Paul makes that definition in Romans chapter 4. Here we see that it is the light of the gospel which would make those nations manifest. And it certainly did. Once the people of Europe became known collectively as Christendom, the wonderful truth of the Christian Israel fulfillment of Scripture is therefore hidden in this mistranslation in the King James Bible. Let us read verse 32 once more. A light for the revelation of the nations and honor of your people Israel. Although this is not properly a hendiatus, a hendiatus is a grammatical construction that employs a definite article and two or different nouns which refer to the same entity, the nations and the honor. Here certainly belong, they both belong to, quote unquote, your people Israel, meaning the Israel of Yahweh. The Israelites were prophesied to leave Palestine at an early time. 2 Samuel 7.10, 1 Chronicles 17.9, and Genesis 28.14, a remnants of that, and to become many nations. Genesis 35.11 is evidence of that. 
We will see this again when we cover Acts 9.15. These things certainly happened, as it is revealed by a study of ancient history that many of the Greeks, Romans, Trojans, Phoenicians, etc., descended from Israelites migrating out of Palestine before the Assyrian deportations of the Israelites, and that the Parthians, Scythians, Chimerians, and others all descended from the Israelites of the Assyrian deportations, along with certain Jepethi tribes, such as the Ionians at Athens, whom Paul addresses in Acts chapter 17, these Israelites make up the population of Europe and are the white Europeans, as opposed to the later Arab and Turkic invaders, of today. To them, did the apostles bear the light of the gospel. That's why Paul went to Europe. And in them is found Christendom fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies which concerned the true Israelites and not the Jews. I would like to jump ahead to Luke 11, verses 45 through 52. Then replying, one of the lawyers said to him, meaning to Christ, Teacher, saying these things, you also insult us. So he said, And to you lawyers, woe! Because you load men with burdens hard to bear, and these burdens you touch with not one of your fingers. Woe to you, because you build the monuments of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Therefore you are witnesses, and you consent to the works of your fathers, because they killed them, and you build. For this reason also the wisdom of Yahweh says, quote, I shall send to them prophets and ambassadors, or apostles, and some of them they shall kill, and they shall persecute, in order that the blood of all the prophets spilled from the foundation of the cosmos, or the society, should be required from this race, from the blood of Abel, under the blood of Zacharias, who was killed between the altar and the house. Yeah, I say to you, it shall be required from this race. Woe to you, lawyers, because you have taken the key of knowledge. You do not enter in yourselves, and you prohibit those who are entering in, mostly by mistranslating the Bible, or at least partially. The Greek word genea, Strong's number 1074, is race, stock, family, a tribe, a nation. It could be a generation. Where it should be translated generation, it doesn't lose the idea, the connotation of a race, a stock, or a family. It's very rare in the King James that it should ever be translated a generation. There are a couple of instances. But it still means all of the members of a particular race who are living contemporaries at roughly the same time. And so in the King James Version, it is more often than not rendered generation and, and never rendered race, as it is also here, which is in defiance of the context of the most basic meaning of the word. In this context that we see in Luke 11:45 through 52, where we have sons and fathers, both near and remote, see verses 47 and 48, 
and where both the remote past and the recent past are in focus. In the reference to Abel, 5,500 years before Christ, and Zacharias, in verse 51, the word cannot be rendered generation. It has to be rendered race, for it cannot be referring to merely a single generation, or as we may define the term, a mere portion of that race which exists at any particular time. It has to be referring to a race. And only the race of the Edomites, the race of Cain, can be responsible for the blood of Abel. So Christ is certainly not talking about true Israelite Judahites. Only the race of Cain can be held responsible for the blood of Abel. Here I would like to discuss Luke 9.41, which many people have brought up in reference to my discussions of Luke chapter 11, verses 45 to 52 that I just discussed. This passage has Yahshua exclaiming, Oh, faithless and perverted race, generation in the King James, of course, in reference to people in Jerusalem who evidently had little faith in the true God and should have. The word diastrepho is perverted, and it may also be distorted. The word genea is again race, and it may be read generation, or it is by the King James anyway. Yet similar language is used here in Luke, in Luke 11, and speaking of fathers and sons, both recent and long past, only race can be meant and not simply a group of contemporaries. In Luke 9, Luke 9.41, I would purport that alien elements may indeed pervert a race as a whole, both genetically and also by undue influence, without each member, each and every member of that race being corrupted, but rather only a portion of those members. And I would cite the world around us at this very day in order to have you understand that. Judeo-Christians are a perverted race, even though they are not a corrupted race. They're perverted with the ideas of these same Edomites that the first century people in Judea were also corrupted and perverted with. While we are here in Luke, I want to point out something in Luke 6.34 and 15.27. Luke 6.34 says, And if you lend to them of whom you hope to receive, what thank have you? This is the King James Version. For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. And, and that word for receive again is important. It's apolambano. And in Luke 6.34, the King James Version of the Bible translates it, receive again. If you check your Strong's Concordance, it will verify that. Luke 15.27. I'll read from 15.25. And his elder son was in the field, and coming as he approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And calling to one of the servants, he inquired what these things could be. And he said to him that, quote, your brother is come, and your father is sanctified the fattened calf, calf because he being healthy has 
been recovered. That's my translation. The King James Version of that verse says received and not recovered. The verb apolambano is to recover, in my translation, in both of those places. And we see that in each case, the subject of the discourse, if we pay attention to the context of what's being said, is receiving back something that they once possessed. So the word cover is certainly more appropriate. Recover is certainly more appropriate. The verb is rendered in the King James as to receive again in Luke 6.34. And if we check the North American Standard Bible, it would say receive back. Now in Luke 15.27, where it's talking about a long-lost brother, the difference is rather innocuous. It doesn't matter a whole lot to the, to the content of the story. We could see that it's a brother, a lost brother that has been received back. So even though the King James simply says received, we understand that it's recovered. There are other places in the King James Version where translating Apple Lambano into receive is much more important. One of these places is Galatians 4.5. The renderings of receive back or receive again that the King James has made in, in um, Luke 6.34 help to show those who do not read Greek the true meaning of the word. When we look at it, in Galatians 4.5. The verb lambano by itself, without the prefix apo, is simply sufficient to say receive. Apo lambano is to take or receive what is one's due, to take back, get back again, regain, regain or recover. If we read Galatians 4.5 with this in mind, the importance of, the tr of translating this verb correctly in the context of the covenant message to the children of Israel becomes absolutely clear. The King James has Galatians 4.5, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And that word adoption is also another bad translation. We can read the Greek to Galatians 4.5, in order that he would redeem those subject to law, that we would recover the position of sons. In other words, it's something that these people lost. Those who were subject to law, when they were driven off from Israel by Yahweh, lost the position of sons. And the word means to recover, not to receive. It's not being received by somebody who never had it in the first place. It's being recovered by the lost sheep, the already lost sheep, the children of Israel. All of these little translations mean a lot when, when they are corrected in the view and in the light of the importance of the covenants and the covenant promises of our God. We see that our God does not break his promises as the Judeo-Christians would claim that he does.
I'd like to read Luke 16, 1 through 9, the parable of the unrighteous steward. The parable of the unrighteous steward is very poorly understood because it is very poorly translated, especially in verses 8 and 9. This also sounds pretentious, but it is a simple fact. If you listen to most commentators on the parable of the unrighteous steward, they will go so far as to claim that Yahweh, our God, justifies stealing in order to maintain the veracity of the King James Version translation of this passage, along with other versions of the Bible. I'd like to read it from my translation. Then he also said to the students, this is Luke 16.1, there was a certain wealthy man who had a steward, and he had suspected him of squandering his possessions, and calling him, he said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give me an account of your stewardship, for you are no longer able to be steward. And the steward said to himself, what shall I do, that my master has taken the stewardship away from me? I am not able to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I know, what shall, I know what I shall do in order that when I have been removed from the stewardship, they, meaning the master's clients, shall receive me into their houses. And calling on each one of those who were indebted to his master, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred baths of olive oil. So he, the steward, said to him, take your records and quickly sitting down, write 50. Next he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred cores of grain. He says to him, take your records and write 80. And the master praised the unrighteous steward because he did wisely or cunningly. Because the sons of this age are wiser than the sons of light are towards their own race. And I say to you, shall you make for yourselves friends of the riches of unrighteousness, that when you should fail, they may receive you into eternal dwellings? And that's a question. It's a rhetorical question. The verses in question here are verses 8 and 9, and an examination of those verses shall reveal a very different meaning in this parable from what most Bible studies and commentaries suggest. Therefore, they shall be discussed here at length. Concerning the text of Luke 16.8, as we have said several times already, the word genea is a race, a stock, or a family. It is race here, and not, as it may be in some contexts, a race, a generation, or an age, or a time of life, as we say, generation, and as the King James almost always translates this word. That it is race here can be made evident without resorting to any other biblical references, but from the full statement here alone, which I shall now endeavor to elucidate. The full clause in Greek, Hodi, Oihuioi, tu ahionis, tau tu fronimotoroi, huper tos fios, to photos, ice tain ganeon, tain hutan isen, 
I'm sorry about that. I had to read it. Or because the sons of this age are wiser than the sons of light are towards their own race, shall be examined here, inspecting each Greek word or phrase in the order which it appears in this sentence. Hoki, because, oi huioi, the sons, as in the nominative case, and therefore the subject of the clause, because the sons. Toahionis tatu, of this age, the pronoun referring to what precedes. Tatu is a pronoun. Ahionis is the genitive singular of ahion, which is age here. The word is a period of existence, an age, a generation, a long space of time, a definite space of time, an era, an epoch, a period. It's a period of time, and the King James translates it as world. And we view world as a spatial word and not as a, as a temporal or a, a word having to do with a period of time. It is the source of our English word eon. And it almost always in the NT infers a long period of time. And so it may be presumed to be equivalent to the span of many generations as we use that term today. If Ahion indeed infers such a long space of time here, then the word Genea cannot be translated generation. It must be translated race, since many generations would be required to fill this age. Yet, even if Ahion infers a shorter duration, a single generation or era, the word Ganeahia still has to be rendered race, lest the use of the word is redundant and it becomes meaningless. The King James Version translators must have realized this predicament, and here, like they did on many occasions elsewhere, they rendered the word Ahion as world, a meaning which the word certainly does not have. Ahion can only refer to a period of time and not of space. Tony Motoroy Hooper are wiser beyond. The word are comes from the last word of the clause, the third person, person plural for, form of Aimi, or they are. This is common in Greek, which orders its words quite differently than English. The word hooper is a preposition which is properly over or beyond what follows, but here is, it is not rendered as such. The comparative form of phronimos, which is wiser, and the conjunction than, and so are wiser than, being sufficient to express the meaning in English. There's another phrase here, the next phrase, tus huios is the sons, and it's in the accusative case, as opposed to the word for sons earlier in the verse, which were in the nominative case, and they were the subject of the clause. Here, the accusative case distinguishes this noun as the object 
of the verb or of certain prepositions. Here, this phrase, the sons, is the object of the preposition Hooper in the previous phrase, which is beyond or wiser beyond. Part of the phrase which means wiser beyond. Photos is light here. It's the genitive singular phos. The genitive is a case that expresses possession, source, or measurement. And here the sons, the preceding noun, belongs to it. So we have the phrase, the sons of light. Ice is the next word, and that's a preposition used only with the accusative case as Tanganean, which it follows, well, which is what follows, and it is properly into and then to. And also, among other things, it may be translated at, with, to, towards, in regard to, or for, according to Liddell and Scott. And in certain contexts, it may sometimes be rendered in, but it is not commonly in. There are examples where it, where it could stand in English for at, and so it's translated in. The in their generation that the AV has here would be properly expressed with another word, the Greek word n, and the dative case, and not with the word ice and the accusative case, which is what we have in the Greek here. Tain Ghanaian Tain Hutan is a phrase which means their own race, or literally the race that is of themselves. The articles are all of the accusative case. The word Ghanaian is of the accusative case. It's the accusative form of the noun Ghanaia, which means race. And so this phrase is the object of the preposition ice. While the article is the accusative singular, the pronoun hoton is of themselves or of their own here is of the genitive plural and that reflects back to the subject, according to MacDonald's Grammar Book, Greek and Caridion, page 104. And so here, Tanganayan belongs to one party only, the sons of this age who are the subject of this clause. And so the word Ghanaian must again be rendered race and cannot be rendered generation since the sons of both this age and the sons of light are obviously contemporaneous, and so they share the same period of time. While such number and case mismatches are rare, the article Cain is accusative singular while its noun being genitive plural. This is done expressly in order to avoid confusion to show the relationship between Hutone and Tanganayan here. The result is that there is no question that Tanganayan, which means the race, belongs to Hutone or of themselves, referring to the subject of the clause, 
who are the sons of this age. I know that this explanation is arduous, and my notes will be posted along with this podcast so that people can download it and follow along and understand what is being said here. Luke 16.8 says, And the master praised the unrighteous steward because he did wisely, because the sons of this age are wiser than the sons of light are towards their own race. And I had to go through these details to show that this translation can be verified from the Greek. Here now it should be manifest that this verse is describing the sons of this age and the sons of light as two separate races. Those same two races which have vied with each other throughout the age, just as Genesis 3.15 forebode that they would. Once we translate this passage correctly, we realize that this is indeed a parable about the two seeds of Genesis 3.15, and that it is not a parable about Yahweh, our God, approving the breaking of his own commandment, which means, which is, thou shalt not steal. Now to turn our attention to the text of Luke 16.9. And I say to you, shall you make for yourselves friends from the riches of unrighteousness, that when you should fail, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. This verse is very naturally read as a question, which neither the King James Version, nor the Nestle Eglandovum Testamentum Grece, nor any of the other versions of this verse, which I have seen, do so. None, no, I don't know. I, I checked this verse on a website, biblio.com. I forget the exact URL, but but it's the Biblio website that offers all of the translations of any passage that's put into it. And none of the translations of the Bible read Luke 16.9 as a question. Admittedly, I am the only person that does so. Many commentators use this verse as a statement to justify the wicked methods of dishonest steward which amount to stealing. And so much drivel has been written concerning this verse because, as I believe, and I would assert, this verse being a rhetorical question has been overlooked by so many men. The construction of the verbs here naturally make this verse a rhetorical question where a verb of the indicative mood is followed by a verb of the subjunctive mood the future in poiesati, the future indicative of poieo, Strong's number 4160, is shall you make. The later verb, eclipe, is the aorist subjunctive of eclipo, Strong's number 1587, and it is when you should fail, preceded by hotan, meaning when, and it may be written when you might fail. The verb, Dexon Tahi is the aorist subjunctive of Dekomahi, Strong's number 1209. 
here followed by humas, you, and being in a third-person plural, they may receive you or they might receive you. A similar pattern is found at Galatians 6.5, the same verb pattern, which I also read as a rhetorical question, and the King James does not. And I commented upon at length upon my, in my edition of Paul's epistles. The indicative mood, as poie sate is here, is often used in interrogation. And I could cite McDonald's Greek Enchiridion again, page 43, even without an interrogatory particle. And this is often done by Luke, and it's recognized by both the King James Version and Nestle A. Land in many places, and in at least 18 places in Luke's writing. Biblical evidence that in context, the interpretation of Luke 16.9 is correct when it's read as a rhetorical question is quite plain. First, the commandment states that thou shalt not steal. Christ here is certainly not endorsing embezzlement, the embezzlement of the unrighteous steward. Second, it is certain that the friends of the unrighteous steward cannot receive him into any eternal dwelling. If we read Luke 16.9, as every Bible version does, including the King James, then we have to assume that Christ is telling us that the friends of the unrighteous steward can receive him into an eternal dwelling. And I would say that they certainly cannot. This verse must be a rhetorical question because only Yahweh can receive us into eternal dwellings. Third, the subjunctive, the, the subsequent verse at 16.13 plainly states that one cannot serve both Yahweh and riches simultaneously. So the obvious answer to the question asked here in verse 9 is no. The real lesson here is that the unrighteous steward, who is evidently one of the sons of this age, has acted as those of his race are expected to act, craftily, because they have no reward at the end of this life. The sons of light, the true Adamic Israelites, should not do as the sons of this age do. Note Matthew chapter 7, verses 16 through 20. The Israelites' eternal dwelling is with Yahweh, and there is none other. He should store his treasure there, since worldly riches or mammon mean nothing. The truth of this parable cannot be arrived at with the King James translation. Luke 17, verses 11 through 19. And it came to pass while traveling into Jerusalem that he had passed through the center of Samaria and Galilee, and upon his coming into a certain town, they encountered ten leprous men who had stood afar off. And they raised their voices, saying, Yahshua, Master, have mercy on us. And seeing them, he said to them, Going, show yourselves to the priests. And it happened that with their going off, they were cleansed. Then one of them, seeing that he was healed, returned with a great voice extolling Yahweh and fell upon his face by his feet thanking him. And he was a Samaritan. And replying, Yahshua said, 
were not ten cleansed, then where were the nine? Are there none found returning to give honor to Yahweh except he who is of another race? And he said to him, Arise and go forth. Your faith has preserved you. In verse 18 here, the verb alogenes is of another race or a stranger, as Liddell and Scott define it. It's a, it, it's, a, it's a compound word. It comes from the Greek word alos, which means another or other, and the word genea, which means race. It only appears here in the New Testament. And while this word may be used to signify somebody who is not Adamic in our world today, that interpretation is not compulsory because in the Greek world it may only signify that the man is merely a non-Judean or a non-Israelite. Today we are used to the idea that there are multiple nations created from one race. So we think of the word nation as being a subdivision of race. We look at the word differently than the Greeks looked at the word. The Greek view of race was much narrower than our own. From their perspective, a race could specify a tribe or a subdivision within a nation, even though we would perceive all the members of that nation to be of the same race. We, we would, from our viewpoint, make that perception. This man being a Samaritan most probably was an Adamite, since at least most of the peoples that the Assyrians had brought into Samaria were from other parts of the same Adamic world which the Assyrians had conquered, along with many Israelites who were left behind, and that can be established in, in Scripture and in history. However, more importantly, with this use of the word alogenes here to refer to a Samaritan, it can be seen clearly that Luke's use of the word ethnos, which the King James Version most often, often translates as Gentile, cannot mean to describe people of other races, or Luke would have used this word, alogenes, instead. Most of the references by Paul and Luke to the so-called Gentiles are actually references to the nations of the dispersed children of Israel. So this word, this one passage in Luke, proves that the Judeo-Christian view of the word Gentile is wrong. Gentile. The Greek word ethnos, where ethnos appears everywhere where the word Gentile appears in the New Testament, the Greek word is really ethnos. The Greek word ethnos never at any time at all meant non-Jew. And this one occurrence can be used to prove that. at least partially. Luke 18.32 
For he shall be handed over to the heathens, and mocked and abused and spat upon, and being scourged, they shall slay him, and in the third day he shall be resurrected. And that word ethos is translated heathens here in my translation. The phrase toiseth nason is the dative plural, which is to the heathens. The word ethnos is usually, and it is properly, nation. Yet, it may in certain contexts be translated as people. And we will discuss this shortly when I talk about Acts 13.46. This is especially true when the people being described consist of more than one nationality, where the Greek word laos, Strong's number 2992, is properly people, but where it describes more than one nationality, laos is inappropriate. There are examples in Scripture of ethnos, translated as people, where it is appropriate, and, and even sometimes in the King James Version, and, and Mark eleven seventeen, Acts 8, 9, and Acts 18, 6, and elsewhere, and, and I'll talk about them again later. The scriptural as well as the historical records are clear that Edomites in Judea were primarily responsible for the crucifixion and having gained the political and the ecclesiastical leadership of the nation, although both the Romans and those true Israelites who were in Judea were unwitting accomplices. The scriptural record also attests that both Judeans and Romans spat on and abused Yahshua Christ, and that's evident comparing Matthew 26, verse 67, Mark 14, verse 65, and Matthew 27, verse 30, and Mark 15, 19. So in this context, the Greek word estos may be properly translated heathen, and I will discuss that further on. Luke 21.25, and this is important, the phrase, and I, I translate Luke 21.25 thus, And there shall be signs in the moon and the sun and stars and upon the earth an affliction by the heathens, the sea and the waves roaring in difficulty. The phrase by the heathens may be literally re rendered of nations. And it is rendered that way in the King James Version. That doesn't really mean that it's, that it's correct. We've just had a brief discussion of the word ethnos as a nation, heathen, or people, above mentioning Luke 18.32. I'll get to that in more detail further on. Translating this verse, Luke 21.25, I must let the context stand on its own. However, the implication is that the implication, uh, I'm sorry, is that the affliction is by the heathens, or more literally from the heathens. And this is plain in the Greek. The King James Version's rendering of nations while it is literally correct, is in error in context. The heathens, or nations, whichever one may prefer, are not the ones being afflicted here. 
it's in Greek, the heathens or the nations were being afflicted in Luke 21, 25, then that would require the accusative case so that the noun could be the, ob the direct object of the verb. Rather, here, the word appears in the genitive case. The genitive case is used to express either possession or source. There's an exactly similar grammatical construction, which the King James Version handled appropriately, which is found in Acts 14.5, where the phrase, Horme ton ethnon te kahi yudahion, is rendered an attack of both the people and the Judeans. Where we see that even in King James, in the King James Version, the word people is translated from ethnos. There, because ethnos and eudahias, or Judeans, are both in the genitive case, the King James translators understood that they were the source of the attack, Acts 14.5. However, here in Luke 21.25, where the same exact grammatical construction exists, the words being sunoke ethnon, the King James translators did not make that realization. Here, the affliction is said to be coming from people or from the heathens. And the context will reveal that that is the right, that that is the correct translation. It is apparent in Luke chapter 21 that Yahshua's discourse is a dual prophecy, both at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem and of the time of his return. Understanding that distress is caused by the heathens, that they are, or, or nations, that they are the source of this distress. As the Greek grammar insists, I believe that this phrase can only be translated correctly in Luke 21-25 as an affliction by the heathens because that interpretation is perfectly clear in the light of the circumstances which we have both today and which were extant in Jerusalem in 70 AD when the city was destroyed. Luke chapter 21, verses 24 and 32. At verse 24, the King James Version of the Bible, discussing those who rejected Christ, reads like this. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. I would read the Greek of the later half of this verse in this manner. And Jerusalem shall be tread upon by the heathens until the time of the heathens be fulfilled. The word which the King James Version rendered Gentiles 
which I translated as heathens, may be also read as either nations or peoples, and again, the context will stand for itself. Many people believe that this verse should be read to mean until the times of the Israel nations should be fulfilled. Let me, let me say that such an interpretation cannot possibly be correct. We have prophecy in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 36, in Daniel 2.44, and in Daniel 7.27, that the time of the Israel nations will never be fulfilled, because we will always be a nation. And the word fulfilled also means completed. One must not confuse Luke 21.24 here with the prophesied period of Israel's punishment, which is a separate contact, a separate topic which would necessitate reading ideas into this text which are not expressed. Israel's enemies, and so the heathen, have indeed trampled Jerusalem underfoot since the time of Christ. However, we, the children of Israel, are Jerusalem, wherever our seats of government are located. This prophecy does not describe that forever broken desolation of a city in Palestine. Pray for Yahshua that their time shall be fulfilled shortly. Having this in mind, I would read verse 32 in this manner. Truly I say to you that by no means should this race escape until all things come to be. The word Ganea in Luke 2132, is rendered by its primary definition here, race, and not, as the King James Version has it, a generation. I would say that first it must be realized that there were nearly 40 years between this discourse by Christ and the final destruction of Jerusalem. The generation of the Exodus spent a like amount of time in the desert so that those who left Egypt, excepting a few, would not see Palestine. Hebrews 3, verses 5 through 19. Secondly, statements at verses 24 through 28 had not come to be fulfilled by 70 AD, nor for many centuries later. So, Ganea, in Luke 21, 32, must mean race and not generation. Thirdly, reading race here in context with the use of the word elsewhere, and the related word genos, and there are many examples, Luke 9.41, Luke 16.8, Luke 11.50. We have a very consistent interpretation of the verb. Note the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew chapter 13. When we translate words like genea and genos correctly, when we examine how we're translating the word ethnos, when we reject the, the, the use of the word gentile, which has no meaning in English, and certainly never meant non-Jew, then all of the covenant promises are clearly manifested in the Gospel of Luke. And we see that the God of the Old Testament indeed never changed his mind and never adopted and never will adopt any people except the living, breathing, genetic children of Israel. That important aspect of the truth of the promises of our God 
is totally lost in the King James Version of the Gospel of Luke. Acts one twenty. For it is written in the book of Psalms, His home must be desolate, and there must not be one dwelling in it. Another must take his office. That's my translation of the verb. Where we see the word office, the King James Version of the Bible has bishopric. Bishopric comes from the Greek word episkope, Strong's number 1984. Liddell and Scott define it as a watching over, a visitation, the office of an episcopes, generally an office. The word episcopus, Strong's number 1985, is the root word, and that word came into English through the late Latin word, ecclesiastical Latin, not secular Latin, word episcopus. Which became, I'm sorry, which became our English word bishop. Properly, an episcopus is one who watches over, an overseer or a guardian, a public officer or an intendant. But it's almost always bishop in the King James Version of the Bible. The word episcope appears both here and in Luke 19.44. The word episcopus appears in Luke's writings only in Acts 20:28, 20, where in my translation the word is overseer. It appears several times in Paul, Philippians 1:1, 1, 1, 1 Timothy 3:2, and Titus 1:7. It is always supervisor in my translation. It is clear in the historical record that when the King James Version of the Bible was translated, those who worked on that translation, they had an order and an intent to render certain words in order to give the appearance of legitimacy to the then young Anglican Church. King James actually ordered the translators to translate certain words a certain way to give the Anglican Church the appearance of having a scriptural authority. For this reason, we see that it employs words such as church, where the more accurate word congregation appeared in earlier English versions, such as the Geneva Bible. The King James also uses terms such as deacon, minister, and, like we have here, bishop, and bishopric, which support a church organization, an organized hierarchical church, that the New Testament scriptures in Greek simply do not support. While I have sometimes used the word minister in translation, it must be kept in mind that a minister as someone who performs a deed or a service for the assembly can be a legitimate word. It came to us through Latin. The words church, deacon, and bishop are contrivances of organized religion and of those who seek to maintain religious control over the people, a precept not found in the New Testament except 
amongst Pharisees and Sadducees. So the King James, in a very significant way, is the Pharisaical translation of the Scripture. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. Now hearing, and this is my translation again, the Christogenian New Testament. Now hearing, they had pierced their hearts and said to Peter and the rest of the ambassadors, Men, brothers, what should we do? And Peter to them said, Repent, it says, and each of you must be immersed in the name of Yahshua Christ for remission of your errors, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and your children, and the King James, I believe, actually got that one right, and to all those in the distance, as many as the Prince our God should call. And with many other words, he affirmed and exhorted them, saying, You must be saved from this crooked race. So then those accepting his account were immersed, and they added in that day about 3,000 souls. Again, the word Ganea in Acts 2, verse 30, I'm sorry, verse 40, should be race. We have already seen in Luke 19, 45 through 52, and elsewhere, that in those passages, Ganea must be translated as race. There's no other legitimate translation in the context. That is also the case here. If one is born in the same period of time as one's own peers are born, and that one needs, and one needs to be saved from one's peers, then being part of the same generation as we use the term today, how could one be saved from one's own generation? And if one's enemies were born much sooner or much later than oneself? As we use the term generation, how does Peter know that the people these men have to be saved from are of the same age as them? As we're about to see from subsequent passages in Acts, race is certainly a proper term here. And even the context of this very, uh, of this very sentence demands it. Otherwise, it makes no logical sense whatsoever. Acts chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. And there was on the next day a gathering of them, the leaders and the elders and the scribes in Jerusalem, and Hannes, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and Johannes, and Alexandros, and as many as were of the race of the high priest. And standing them in the midst, meaning the apostles, they inquired, by what power or by what name have you done this? The King James Version has kindred of the high priest. Yet that is the very same word, genos, that they translated as generation almost everywhere else it appears. Here the phrase, ek genos archiaraticu, which is of the race of the high priest, fits both the biblical and the historical context, especially since we shall see in verse 23 in chapter 4 that an opposing phrase, their own countrymen, is employed. If all of these people were Jews, 
as the popular perception and the Judeo-Christians imagine, we wouldn't see phrases like this employed at all in the scripture. Acts 4.23 And being released to their own countrymen and reported they went to their own countrymen and reported as much as the high priests and the elders had said to them. The King James Version has their own company, where my translation has their own countrymen. The phrase is tus idius. It's the accusative plural case. And Sayer, in his lexicon, has it idios. Strong's number 2398, for the nominative plural of hoi idioi, which is the nominative form of this very same phrase, Sayer has, as his definition, one's own people, one's fellow countrymen, associates, one's own household, persons belonging to the house, family, or company. And the ninth edition of Liddell and Scott and their Greek-English lexicon agrees. Having the same phrase under idios, quote, members of one's own family, relatives, unquote. Here it must be ascertained that this word is opposed to the phrase above in Acts 4, verse 6, which reads, in my translation, as many as were of the race of the high priest. Knowing from Josephus, knowing from Paul, knowing from, from Strabo and, and the other historians of the time, that many of the leaders and the high priests were Edomites. And these high priests at this time were Sadducees. They weren't even Pharisees. They were Sadducees. Knowing that these people were Edomites, as so many other scriptures attest, and knowing that the followers of Christ were truly Israelites, we see very clearly in the Greek that Acts 4.6, Luke writes, the race of the high priest, when talking about the high priests and the men who were persecuting the apostles, and in direct contradistinction, he writes, tus idios of their own countrymen when he's talking about the return of the apostles to the other Christians. This distinction is lost where these passages are translated in the King James Version. Acts chapter 4 clearly shows that the apostles were not of the same race as the high priests. Acts 7.19 He, dealing craftily with our race, mistreated the fathers, causing their infants to be exposed for which not to be produced alive. This is talking about the Pharaoh. And again, we see the word race. The King James Version has kindred where we see race here. And kindred is after the word kind, is it not? This further demonstrates that the word genos should have been rendered race in many other places where the context demands it. 
That's all I have to say about that verse. I'll move on to Acts 9.15 and quote my translation. But the prince, meaning Christ, said to him, Go, for he is a vessel chosen by me who is to bear my name before the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. Excuse me. The phrase ethnon ke kahi basilion huion ke Israel is here both the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. The Nestle A Land Novum Testamentum Grece, following the codices Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, and the majority text, wants the first definite article, the, while the codices Vaticanus and Ephraimi Siri have the article. With the article, depending on which set of ancient manuscripts you want to believe, because the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus are of the same age, and I would say of the same authority, where the Alexandrinus and the Ephraim Siri are of the same age, and both of those manuscripts belong to what we would call the Alexandrian tradition. However, they are split on this verse. With the article, the phrase is a form of what we would call a hendiatrician, and that is a grammatical term meaning one by means of three which is a longer form of a hendiatus, which means one by means of two. And this indicates that the terms joined by the conjunctions coalesce or represent the same entity as explained by William MacDonald, Greek Enchiridion, page 117. While the Greek particle te may be written simply and, Followed by the conjunction kahi, it is usually both and, for which see either Little and Scott or Thayer's Greek-English lexicon. They will both attest to that. Te is Strong's number 5037. Thayer gives examples for te kahi and te ellipsis kahi as not only but also as well, ellipsis as, both ellipsis and. The final te is not rendered in my translation, and it certainly shouldn't be and, because of the sons of Israel is not an addition, but is the same entity as the nations and kings, all three items being one and the same, because I read this as a hendiatrician. Even if the hendiatrician does not exist, if the article is missing in the legitimate manuscripts, Thayer defines te and states that it differs from the particle kahi, where kahi is conjunctive, but te is adjunctive. And the kahi introduces something new under the same aspect. 
yet as an external addition. Whereas the conjunction te marks it as having an inner connection with what precedes. This comes from Thayer's Greek-English lexicon under te, page 616, column B. So the phrase may well have been rendered, and this can be proven from the Greek that I'm trying to explain, both the nations and the kings, which are both of the sons of Israel. While that's not literal, it would not do any damage to the meaning of the phrase to interpret it. Both the nations of the sons of Israel and the kings of the sons of Israel, for which see the promises to the Israelite patriarchs recorded at Genesis 17, verses 4 through 6, and Genesis 35, 11, and in many other places. So the Greek of Acts 9.15 fully states Paul's commission by Yahshua Christ that Paul was sent to the nations and the kings, which are both of the sons of Israel. There is no universalism in the Bible. It's only mistranslated by blind translators. Acts 11.1 And the ambassadors and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the nations also accepted the word of Yahweh. Yahweh. This is important. They heard that the nations also accepted the word of Yahweh. The King James Version here in Acts 11.1 has received rather than accepted. The verb dekomahi, Strong's number 1209, means to accept and not, as the King James Version has it, to simply receive, which is usually the verb lambano, Strong's number 2983. Lambano explicitly means to receive. The verb dekomahi, on the other hand, is to take, accept, receive what is offered, to accept or to approve. It was clearly a matter of prophecy that lost Israel would hear and accept the gospel that those in Judea rejected, for which see the examples in prophecy in Isaiah chapters 53 and 54, Ezekiel chapter 34, and Hosea chapters 2 and 14. But it's the very same reason Paul wrote, For me to be a minister of Yahshua Christ to the nations, performing the good service of the good message of Yahweh, in order that it be a presentation acceptable of the nations, having been sanctified by the Holy Spirit, which is how I translate Romans fifteen sixteen, Acts 11, 1 says, the nations also accepted the word of Yahweh, not the nations also received the word of Yahweh. There's a huge difference there. The way the King James translates it, we see support for universalism in the scripture. Acts 12, verses 1 through 5. Now, throughout that time, Herodotus the king applied his hands to mistreat some of those from the assembly. And he slew Jacobus, the brother of Johannes, with a sword. 
Then seeing that it is pleasing to the Judeans, he proceeded to seize Petrus, or Peter, and it was the days of unleavened bread, whom he then laying hold of put into prison, committing him to the four squads of four soldiers to watch him, planning after the Passover to lead him to the people. So then Petrus was kept in the prison, but prayer was fervently being made to Yahweh by the assembly concerning him. But at Acts 12.5, I just read Acts 12 verses 1 through 5. I'm sorry, at Acts 12.4, the King James Version doesn't have Passover. It has Easter. And that might be one of the most ridiculous things that the King James translators have done. Because it's so patently obvious. The word Passover is Pasco, Strong's number 3957. It's the same word used to describe the Passover feast of the Israelites throughout the Septuagint. The substitution of the pagan fertility holiday of Easter by the church is a crime. And so is the King James translation use of the word Easter here. As Paul advises us at 1 Corinthians 5.8, Christians should, should keep the Passover. Acts 13.46. This is very important. Then Paul and Barnabas, speaking openly, said, To you it was necessary to speak the word of Yahweh first, since you have rejected him and judge yourselves not worthy of eternal life. Behold, we turn to the people. The King James Version has Gentiles here at Acts 13.46 instead of people. The phrase is ta ethne, the accusative plural of ethnos, Strong's number 1484. And with the article here in my translation, it is the people. There are several other places in the New Testament where the context dictates that the word ethnos be rendered people and not nation or even heathen. Among them, we, we can count Mark 11, 17, Acts 8, 9, Acts 18, 6, and 1 Corinthians 12, 2. So this is quite common. The King James Version, if we read it, if, if we turn to Strong's Concordance, you will find this, has people for the word ethnos in Acts 8-9. In the King James Old Testament, at Isaiah 56-7, which is quoted at Mark 11-17, and the Septuagint, Brent, and, and, and I'm sorry, in Isaiah 56-7, the King James also has people and, and that's quoted for, for the Hebrew word goy, and that's quoted at Mark eleven seventeen. And the King James and the Septuagint, Brenton has people for the word ethnos in Leviticus twenty two. I haven't checked the Septuagint elsewhere, but here it should surely be people and not Gentiles, and I'm going to explain why. It is an absolute fallacy committed by many theologians and all Judeo-Christians that here in this very verse, Acts 13.46, Paul invents a new religion, rejecting the Judeans and bringing Christianity instead to some 
Gentiles who were never a part of the covenants of God. This is the usual interpretation of this verse. Your Bible, most Bible commentaries and, and most notes in most study Bibles will say this very thing. In fact, we see Paul at other Judean synagogues in the subsequent chapters. Immediately after this incident, in Acts chapter 13, verse 46, we see Paul at a Judean synagogue somewhere else in Acts 14.1, and also throughout Acts chapters 17, 18, and 19. So Paul, as if he had the authority, is not rejecting the Judeans and turning to Gentiles here in Acts 13.46. That is ridiculous. Many Bible editions cross-reference Acts 13.46 to Matthew 21.43 to support this false interpretation. Instead, Matthew 21.43, where Christ says to the Pharisees that, quote, the kingdom of God shall be taken to you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. That passage should not be cross-referenced here. That passage should be cross-referenced to Daniel 2.44. And to Micah 7, 8, Micah chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, which both prophesy the everlasting kingdom of the Israelite people of Yahweh. In the context here of Acts 13.46, Paul is addressing the assembly hall leaders, and he is rejecting them because they rejected the word of God. Those who are opposing Paul in this local, in this one local assembly hall. And Paul is telling them that he is going to turn to the people themselves, the people who make up this assembly, which happens to be consisted of both Judeans and Greeks, and probably also of Celts and Romans, and even maybe some Phrygians, all the Danic people who were known to have dwelt in this area, and most of whom were descended from the Israelites of the Old Testament. So the mixed group cannot be properly termed in Greek aleos, which is the Strong's number 2992, and which is the general word for people. Aleos is a people as a collective unit, but the group which consists of various of people of various ethnic backgrounds is not properly considered a laos. And it must be termed, as it was very often by the Greeks and all throughout the New Testament, it must be termed a ta ethne, nations of people, the nations of people who are in this place. And this is something that all Bible translators miss. The word laos is the people both in singular and plural, according to Liddell and Scott. And while Brenton writes it in the plural, peoples in the Septuagint at Psalm 116.1, Sayer makes no definite comment, but Sayer says the plural seems to be used of the tribes of the people and gives Genesis 49.10, Deuteronomy 32.8, and Isaiah 13. 3.13 and Acts 4.27 as examples. The context of this 
is quite clear. Once we see that ethnos can be translated as people, and we reread this passage, and we learn that Paul is only rejecting the synagogue readers and turning to the common people of the synagogue, Judeo-Christianity and replacement theology go out the window. They're dead. They're done. They don't work in the New Testament. It's a false theology based on bad translations. Acts 14, 21 through 23. And announcing the good message in that city and many becoming students, they returned to Lystra and to Iconion and the and to Antiochia, reinforcing the spirits of the students, encouraging them to abide in the faith, and that it is necessary through many tribulations for us to enter into the kingdom of Yahweh. Verse 23 is the crux of the matter here. And elders being elected by them in each assembly, praying with fasting, they presented them in whom they had confidence with the authority. The phrase, with the authority, is from the Greek phrase, tokurio. It's the dative noun with an article that the King James translation always renders as the Lord. The King James translation renders the verb pistuo to believe here, and it supposes that the phrase tokurio which is in the dative case, it's the dative case of Hocurius, is what is referred to by the pronoun whom. If that were the case, I would expect the pronoun to be also in the dative case and not in the accusative case, which fully indicates that it refers to the earlier pronoun them, which is also in the accusative case. There is, that this may sound mundane, but there is a serious grammatical problem with the way the King James Version translated Acts 14.23. In context, if the assembly did not first believe in Christ, they wouldn't have bothered electing elders. Rather, the intent here is to show that the assembly must have confidence in a man before he is elected to a post of authority. The word curios is an adjective that basically means authority. It's not always used as a noun in the New Testament. Where it is used as a noun, it is a title for God or for Christ. But it's not always a noun, and this is one place where it is clearly not a noun. Furthermore, the King James rendering of Acts 14.23, where it says, and when they had ordained them elders in every church, contains another serious mistranslation. The verb kairotonio is rendered ordained, which makes it sound like the apostles set bishops over an assembly, kind of like the Pope does. But the word kairotonio means to stretch out the hand for the purpose of voting, to vote for, to elect properly by a show of hands. 
This word can never mean ordain, as the King James Version has it. As we have previously stated, the primary meaning of the King James translators was to uphold the authority of the Anglican Church, an institution created by man. The elders in a true Christian assembly were voted into office by the common people of that assembly, and they were exclusively responsible to the common people of the assembly that they watched over. I will read this verse again. And the elders, being elected by them, the people, in each assembly, praying with fasting, they presented them, they presented to the elders, in whom they had confidence, with the authority, meaning the authority over the assembly that they were elected over. The King James twisted Acts 14.23 in order to support the authoritative Anglican Church. The Christian Assembly should have been elected and locally operated in each town and village where we have an Assembly of Christians. The Assembly only answers to itself, never to a remote supreme authority. The only authority that each assembly should answer to is the scripture. There's one more passage which I want to elucidate tonight, and, and I know it's running a little late. Acts 22, verse 9. This is a serious mistranslation on, on the part of the King James, and many of the Paul bashers have taken advantage of that mistranslation. The King James reads Acts 22, 9 in this manner. And they that were with me saw indeed the light, and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spoke to me. I would read the Greek here in this manner. And they who were with me surely beheld the light, the light, but for the voice they did not understand that being spoken to me. The following explanation is adapted from my paper, William Fink versus the Paul Bashers. Paul gives three accounts of the road to Damascus event, the last given many years after the first. Can we expect them to be the same word for word? Of course not. Over the years, different aspects of an event are more lasting in memory, while other details fade into oblivion. And each time Paul relates this, that this event, it is someone else, here it is either Luke or someone who Luke obtained a record from, who is recording his words. Is the recorder really reporting everything which Paul said on each of the three occasions, or is it more likely that, as was customary at the time, only a synopsis was given in each of the three records? Of course, each record is only a synopsis, and we should not force a higher standard upon Paul than we would upon any other ancient writer. The same goes for Luke. Luke, the typically exacting historian, which, for example, see Luke 3.1, certainly saw no conflict in the three accounts, and he may well have rectified it if he did, having every opportunity to do so since he wrote them. Yet, comparing the King James translation, or even the RSV, 
of Acts 9-7 and Acts 22-9, it can easily be seen where there would be a cause for concern regarding the validity of the account, for there seems to be an irreconcilable discrepancy in English. Did the people with Paul hear the voice, or did they not hear it? It is commonly professed by most people in various factions of what we term Israel identity that there are many errant translations found in the King James Version of the Bible, while certain of Paul's detractors have cited the RSV here, referring to Acts 9, 7, and 22, 9. It is because that version does virtually no better than the King James in many respects, and Acts 22.9 is poorly translated in both versions. And I would say, again, Acts 22.9 is poorly translated in every version that I've seen it in to date. I've checked other versions of Acts 22.9, such as the New Living Translation, and they are even worse. It can be demonstrated time and again that theologians have written what they think the Greek says, and just as often, what they think the Greek should say, and they claim to be offering fair translations. Because all of our Bible versions are so polluted to one extent or another, one shouldn't dare judge any Bible passage critically unless one can, as Paul himself attests, prove all things, making fair trial of them for oneself. The first half of Acts 22.9, which I have translated, and they who are with me surely beheld the light, is not an issue here. It's the second half, which I have translated, but for the voice, they did not understand that being spoken to me. That will be discussed here. In the Greek of the Novum, no, Nestle Land Novum Testamentum Greca, which is consistent among all ancient manuscripts, we read... Tain de phonane, uk e kusan, tu aluntas moi, and it is consistent among all manuscripts. Here we shall examine each word of this clause. They, the word but, marks the beginning of a new clause, being a conjunctive particle with adversative force. It is always placed as the second word in the clause, and so it follows the article tain here. The phrase tain phonane, the voice is the accusative case which marks it as the direct object of the verb here. I have supplied the word for in my translation, just as with the genitive case of or from often must be supplied, or with the dative case the words to or with must be supplied. Phone, which may have been written sound here, is also translated sound often in the King James. Here I have translated it voice. Uk is the negative particle, and it means not, and it precedes that which it negates, which leads us to the verb, ekusan. Ekusan is a third-person plural form of the verb akuo, to hear, to hearken, to listen to, to give ear to, to obey, to hear and understand, Liddell and Scott. And it is the last sense of the word given here, to hear and understand. 
which is often used in the New Testament. I'll give an example. At Matthew 13:9, Christ is attributed to a saying, Who has ears to hear, let him hear. The verb akuo, both times it says hear. Yet it is clear from the context that everyone who was present with him heard his words physically. And they certainly all had ears, right? Yet there were probably many people present who did not understand what he said. The same verb is repeated twice again in Matthew 13, 13, accompanied with another word which does literally mean understand. And so the physical acts of hearing and hearing with understanding may both be represented by this same word, lest, as Matthew 13, 9 says, how could one hearing hear not? Now, if Luke wanted to write, or if Paul wanted to say that the men who were present with him physically did not hear the voice, he could have stopped right here. He has already written enough. However, by continuing and adding words to what's been said, Paul explicitly reveals his intended meaning, but all of the translators of the Bible to this day have missed it. The next phrase in the clause is to laluntas. It is a participle form, imperfect tense of the verb laleo, to speak or to talk. With the article, it appears with the article, it is a substantive, a group of words used as a noun. This form of the participle and the article is either of the masculine or of the neuter gender, and there is no personal pronoun present, where we nevertheless see the word him in the King James rendering, or the phrase, the one who, in the RSV. And the writer or the speaker may easily have included a personal pronoun if he wanted to explicitly state as much. Rather, this phrase may, just as properly, and perhaps more properly because of the want of the personal pronoun, be written, that being spoken. The last word of the clause, I'm sorry I pronounced it after the French before, it's M-O-I, it should be moi in Greek, and it means to me. The way which I have rendered this verse is quite proper. I will read it again. I can scroll up and, and find it. I have to apologize. But for the voice, they did not understand that being spoken to me. If Paul wanted to say that they didn't hear the voice, he didn't have to say that being spoken to me. He could have left those words off the clause. Because he included them, we see what his intention were, what, what his intention is. So the way I have translated this verse is quite proper when we examine the Greek. And, unlike all the other translations of the Bible, there is no conflict with Paul's earlier statement in Acts 
chapter 9, verse 7. Indeed, the men with him, as he attests there, the men with him heard the voice or the sound, but they did not hear with understanding what the sound had said. So whenever there seems to be a conflict in the Bible, don't blame the Bible. Blame the understanding of the translators. Blame the understanding of yourself. And look at the original languages and the related passages. And it will clear up every time. This concludes the three-part exposition entitled Errors Inspired by Who? When this project was begun, its purpose was to show that there are indeed clear errors in the King James Version of the Bible. The intent was not to create a mere ad hominem attack on that translation, even though it is clear in some cases that the motives of the translators did indeed purposefully affect the translation. Rather, it was intended to show that if the King James Version of the Bible contains any plain error in translation, then it cannot, it cannot by any means be considered the Word of God in English, as so many fools consider it to be, and that it is our Christian duty to investigate both the sources of the manuscripts employed from the better and more original manuscripts when we can find them, and the meanings of the words which those manuscripts use in their original languages. If there is one error in the King James Version of the Bible, it cannot be the perfect word of God, and Christians have a duty to investigate it. Thank you. By the grace of Yahweh our God, we pray that this is now fully evident. Good night.